Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Oh, boy, Tyler, New Orleans. What a great city. ASBPA 2021, baby. The ASBPA Conference, the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association Conference is in person after a hiatus for the pandemic. And uh, a great crowd came to ASBPA in New Orleans this year, about 300 in person and another 175 people virtually. So it's been a a great conference. We spent a couple of days and uh, I got to say, Tyler, uh, pretty, pretty good conference for ASPN with the award uh, we received yesterday. Real honor. It is. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are honored to have received the Gooderham Media Award Correct. Uh, by ASBPA. Uh, and uh, I just, you know, this is an award that ASBPA gives to uh, journalists and uh, media outlets that cover the coast and um, obviously we're just tremendously honored to receive it but it's a team award truly because the ASPN Coastal News Day our whole thing is about bringing a chorus of voices together we are just merely the the kind of organizers and we do a weekly thing but I mean right you know it's it's a team award and so truly the the award really goes out to our hosts yeah uh, from from way back when we kicked this thing off, we've had just an amazing slate of great contributors to ASPN and to the sponsors uh, who have kept us going. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been tremendous. It was great, to, Derek. It was very nice to see Derek Brockbank uh, present the award. Uh, Derek, former executive director of ASBPA, now executive director of the Coastal States Organization, and. Uh, uh, also the host of the Capital Beach Podcast, one of our original shows. Derek's is one of our first hosts we recruited, along with Jenna Valente, who does the Sea Change Podcast very early on, uh, with several great shows. That it's, And the network has grown in power and prestige, and uh, it is a testament to the contributions and the work of so many great professionals that have that have lent their voices and perspectives to ASPN. So, yeah, it's an award for this community that we're building, and we're really proud of it. And uh, it was great to be acknowledged. I have to say, it was a big surprise. We weren't expecting it, and I'm uh, very, very happy to receive the Gooderham Media Award. Absolutely, ASPN. Peter. Yeah. Uh, but one of the great things about uh, ASBPA, now that we're back in person, is we get to peruse the new research and peter since we were here last which was back in myrtle beach yeah of uh 2019 yeah uh in october yeah uh a new company a new thing has emerged here and this show today we're going to look at uh project vesta which is offering a way to supplement beach sand in a beach renourishment project in such a manner that it will sequester carbon yeah that is fascinating it is project vesta we're going to be talking with the director of research for project vesta dr steven Romanello, who was here at the conference we attended his presentation uh one of the most interesting and innovative things i've ever seen at asb uh, bpa i i have to say uh as you know uh, tyler we have spent a lot of time uh, in coastal communities before we did coastal news today and aspn uh Working on financing for coastal restoration projects. These are expensive. Uh, we had the interesting job of raising taxes in local communities for beach restoration. And the cost of these projects is significant. Project Vesta is bringing a new uh, opportunity to coastal communities around the American shoreline that, A, has a climate uh, benefit, climate change benefit, a carbon sequestration capacity at what could be in certain circumstances no cost to the local government so when i heard this it was one of those this is too good to be true who is this guy i want to talk to this guy i want to hear about this and over the last couple of days we've gotten to know uh, dr romanello and learn more about project vesta and there is something important here and i'm really looking forward to doing this show with him me too peter uh couldn't couldn't agree with that more. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that w- for years we've been at ASBPA talking about sea level rise, talking about shoreline erosion, uh, but the the driving cause, of course, is climate change. And this is for the first time, the I connector. believe, the connector. And yeah. that that strikes me as being a major, yeah. like fireworks are going off in my brain here. So it's yeah. going to be a great show, ladies and gentlemen. 
But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Dr. Romanello, thank you very much for joining us on the American Shoreline podcast and uh, enlightening our audience, I think, is going about Project Vesta. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for being letting me be here, guys. I'm super excited to be on the show, and we're excited to be at ASBPA. Well, uh, great presentation today. Uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, we wanted to start out at, in the pre-show discussion a little bit about your history uh, uh, this is a big shift for you professionally to come to Project Vesta and begin le- leading it as the director of research. Uh, tell us about your professional background. What are you a PhD? What is your research focus and how did you get to Project sure. Vesta? Yeah, I'm a geologist by training. Uh, I earned my uh, master's at Cornell University, my PhD at Arizona State University. I was a research scientist there running a trace metal isotope geochemistry lab for 10 years before taking a faculty position at University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And then the scariest thing I ever did in my whole life was to walk away from the thing I had built for 12 years and move into the startup world. And I'm really excited to be here. It's a really exciting opportunity. It's gotta be a testament to the opportunity and the unique vision of Project Vesta. There's not a lot of college professors who finally land themselves at a major research institution uh, that turn away from that. Climb the mountain. And climb the mountain and start over. So uh, tell us about what is it about Project Vesta that convinced you to shift careers and move into this, this exciting project? I think what's so exciting about Project Vesta is it's a chance to use a process that we know and understand. So we are looking at the dissolution of olivine. The dissolution of silicates is the process that controls Earth's climate over hundreds of thousands and millions of years. I teach this to my intro geology students every single year. We teach carbonate weathering, we teach the silicate cycle. And Project Vesta's key technology is taking that naturally occurring process and speeding it up a factor of a thousand times. Peter, if you don't mind, I, can you uh, tell us what uh, silicate weathering is for those of us that you know aren't geologists? Sure. So a silicate weathering is the process where, say, you have a mountain chain that grows up and you build mountains. And then that mountain material weathers, physically weathers, and then chemically weathers and eventually dissolves into seawater. As silicate minerals dissolve, they take up acidity. They take up protons. So the protons come from CO2, which is dissolved in water. So you guys have heard about ocean acidification? Right. That's caused because we're putting too much anthropogenic CO2 into seawater. When silicates react with that seawater, they take up that acidity, they fix or help to fix ocean acidification, and they take up and they store extra CO2 in the ocean away from the atmosphere and help to fix the climate problem at the same time. It's an amazing thing. I was When we were uh, stopped at the booth uh, yesterday, I think the first day of the conference, and we're learning a little bit about Project Vesta. Uh, this is organic chemistry, as I recall from my organic chemistry class. And uh, what, the, what, the, what the chemical process is here is through silicate uh, weatherization. Weathering. Weathering. Mm-hmm. The absorption of CO2 is part of the chemical reaction that is occurring here. And it can take, at, it can take CO2 out of the atmosphere and out of the water column, actually by using this naturally occurring mineral. It is just simple, basic, organic chemistry and silicates being a very, very common mineral and available in the form of sand uh, can be used on beaches. uh, And if you were to employ this material, you're not only uh, restoring your beach, you are also helping address climate change. That is an exciting connection, Todd, that that's the connection that we're 
we're, we're and, interested and in. i just want to uh look at i'm 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 just tyler you all know me i'm not a phd but i do have a piece of paper here that has the chemical reaction on it and we like to nerd out on this show so i'm gonna do it so it's a two-parter ladies and gentlemen it's a two-phase thing uh the first phase is what's happening right now in nature uh and all it is is co2 with water which is the ocean <laughs> uh turns into carbonic acid right and that is what is causing ocean acidification i believe uh Dr. Romanello, correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, and then the second part is when you introduce the actual olivine into this system that is already natural. And olivine is actually a natural element as well, but we are we are engineering this a little bit. And you take olivine, which I'm not even going to attempt to break that down uh, in terms of, but it, there is a chemical equation here that I'm looking at, along with that carbonic acid. And what you get is it breaks the magnesium off of the olivine and, uh, then you get dissolved carbon, which is HCO3. That's just baking soda. That's just baking soda. Okay, that's cool. And you get dissolved silica, which is, tell me what's what's dissolved silica, H2SiO4. So, so dissolved silica is um, present in seawater silicic acid. Um, it can be, it's present at very low concentrations because it's used by organisms like diatoms and other kinds of marine plankton to make their silicic uh, shells. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about uh, tell us about olivine. What is olivine? Where does it exist? And why is it uh, the the instrumental mineral? I had never in, heard of in, it in project, which is probably my own fault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not familiar with it either. So olivine is the simplest silicate mineral. Um, it's the first thing we teach in geology 101. It's actually one of the most common minerals on Earth. Over 50 percent of the upper part of the Earth's mantle is made out of olivine. Wow. So olivine deposits are found on every continent around the world, and it's available where bits of the Earth's uh, deeper crust, the seafloor, have been brought up to the surface, and we can mine this as an olivine-rich rock called dunite. Dunning. Dunite. Dunite. D-N-N-I-T-E. Do you wait? Yeah. D-U-N-I-T-E. Yep. Dunite is the is is what would people would be familiar with as. The material that is being mined, a dunite, a yep. dunite mine. Yep. yep. And okay. so some of these biggest mines, some of the biggest mines currently in the world are located in Europe, and they're currently mining about 8 million tons a year of dunite to make olivine sand. The primary industrial use of that material is in foundry sand, so they use it when they're making steel and casting cast iron parts. Um, so there's an industrial supply of this material, which already exists. They already ship it around the world in multi-million ton quantities all over the world. Um, but the thing that's really interesting about olivine is that it, although it has this industrial use, the available quantity of it in the world is huge. We are only beginning to tap the potential resource. And so there's an opportunity here to use this mineral at um, hundreds of thousands, millions of tons a year scale have an impact on climate, we might have to do this at a billion ton a year scale, similar to the scale that we mine and extract fossil fuels today. Okay. And so there's a real opportunity to work with coastal professionals. I see. So the, the basic notion here is that if you had a ton of uh, olivine and you turn it into a sand, a particular grain size that might be suitable for a beach, and that were exposed to the air and the water, that material, that mineral, will absorb CO2 and extract CO2 from the water, uh, which is beneficial to the pH and uh, ocean acidification, and it will extract CO2 from the air. So, and and the, does this permanently eliminate the CO2? Tell us about, is it really gone if, if it, this natural reaction of weathering mm -hmm. uh, extracts CO2 from the environment? Tell us about that. Yeah, so one of the things that is really exciting about olivine and enhanced weathering in general is that these weathering reactions are essentially permanent. So you can do lots of things to help the climate. You can plant trees, you can grow a forest, but if that forest is later logged or if that forest later burns down, that CO2 is re-released back to the atmosphere. Right. The weathering of olivine is a, a one-way street. And so as that material weathers, it becomes bicarbonate in seawater. Um, and one of two things will happen at that point. Either it will stay as bicarbonate in seawater if it makes it out to the open ocean, 
it will stay there for up to 100,000 years. Hmm. Wow. Um, and so essentially permanent on human time scales. The other thing that can happen to that CO2 is a fraction of it will precipitate in things like corals and limestone. Um, this is what we want to happen. This is what we, when we talk about fighting ocean acidification, we're talking about growing coral reefs, helping calcareous algae. Um, and so uh, some of that material will be precipitated as a solid. Um, when that happens, you do release a portion of the CO2 that you capture back to the atmosphere, but that's the price you pay for making a permanent long-lived geological solid. Uh, Stephen, why why integrate this into beach renourishment? Why not, say, just dump it uh, into the ocean in some other manner? I mean, is, is there something magical about uh, the beach renourishment system that is, you know, that we, Peter, there's a lot of beach yeah. renourishment projects and they're on the rise. So it, it's interesting that, again, to tie this together, but why is that beach renourishment piece important? Yeah, so when you're mining olivine, um, you're grinding olivine, Part of the big challenge is the, the energy penalty that you pay and the emissions penalty that you pay as you grind that material to finer and finer grain sizes. Working on beaches allows us to deploy that material in the surf zone, um, and as that material tumbles in the surf, it acts, we call, we call it the fancy word for just comminution, huh. um, but we call it grinding. Okay. And so you get some grinding, some grain on grain grinding action. It keeps the mineral surface fresh, keeps it dissolving, and helps to make smaller grain sizes that dissolve more quickly. Interesting. That makes sense. So what's happening uh, chemically is the CO2 molecules are broken down through the uh, interaction with olivine in the weathering process, mm. and it is no longer a CO2 molecule, right? That bond is broken. So it's mm. actually converting the CO2 molecule into something you're saying a, like a baking soda yeah. is one of the byproducts. So, is that, so it's, yeah. it's actually gone We're as opposed to being sequestered or stored. So we're converting dissolved CO2, carbonic acid, yeah. into alkalinity, Got it. bicarbonate. So this is so we're taking something that's harmful to yeah. the ocean, and we're converting it into a phase which is helpful, so that organisms can build their calcareous shells out of it. And we're what you're doing is you're you didn't invent this uh, this process. This is the process. This is a natural process. And one of the buzzwords that I've heard at ASBPA from my very first ASBPA. Uh, and I believe I, I heard it initially from a, a Corps commander, an Army Corps of Engineers commander, was we are going to engineer with nature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That we are going to mimic the natural processes that are happening in nature and try to bring those to bear. And, yeah. and we've seen that in the, in the ASBPA space, in the, in the coastal space, in the form of living shorelines, as moving away from armament and into the realm of uh, dunes and, and beaches, which is where kind of this renourishment comes in. But this is a new ev evolution here, uh, Stephen, of uh, taking this natural weathering process and basically accelerating it and, and expanding it to be more global. Uh, and I find that to be fascinating, uh, a fascinating evolution in human technology in, in how we're going to combat climate change. Can you take us back to the... Uh, the initial thought of Project Vesta. Uh, who came up with this idea? Yeah. Is, it, is it an old idea? Is it a new idea? What's the history of, uh, of this? Yeah, so people have been sort of in the background, academics and geologists have been talking about weathering reactions and couldn't we speed up this reaction somehow for um, more than a decade, um, almost 30 years. Um, and so, you know, so there's a long history of studying these ideas. Um, Project Vesta was founded actually by a group of entrepreneurs um, who were talking to uh, one of our senior science directors, Francesc Montserrat, um, and Francesc was doing his PhD studying this. Couldn't we make this go faster, right? It's, it's not a complicated technology. We take big olivine, massive olivine in a cliff, and we increase the surface area by right. grinding it up finer and finer. That's our technology. And, you know, so... Lots of people have been talking about this, but the, the critical step here was partnering with the private sector, partnering with folks that have their background in Silicon Valley um, and startups and entrepreneurship, because the, one of the challenges is that the, the science and the logistics needed to move this from an idea that's in the laboratory out into the real world it requires more funding and more attention than has been traditionally available from academic programs, NSF, the European equivalent. Right. 
So uh, to kind of wrap up the understanding of, the, of how this works physically, we are familiar with uh, carbon sequestration, secure geologic store, uh, storage through the shows that we did on, on, uh, on, I, on the IRS code 45Q provisions and, and, and interviewing the geologists at the University of Texas Bureau of Economic Geology about deep carbon sequestration on the Texas coast in, in subsurface uh, formations off of the Texas coast, where CO2 would be captured out of the air and then pumped underground and stored in a box. But underneath the ground, essentially, is a reservoir, it's not that simple, uh, of, of CO2. It exists as CO2. This is different than that. This isn't sequestration in the sense of capture and store. It's, it's really about the transformation of CO2, as you said, the chemical transformation into a non- CO2 um, uh, molecule so that we're actually eliminating CO2 from the environment. And, and I love the notion that by placing it in, in the surf zone, that is a dynamic system that's wearing the sand grains down, of course, and exposing the surface area of the olivine, that you're constantly developing the capacity to extract CO2 from the environment. This is really a good idea. It seems, Stephen. <laughs> we think so. Are there uh, any other minerals like olivine that do this? I mean, is olivine kind of unique yeah, in the, why is this, in the why on Earth for that? Sure. All silicate minerals participate to some extent in this dissolution reaction. What makes olivine special is that it's a very simple structure. It means it's very easy for it to fall apart. Um, olivine dissolves. It's an ionic thing. It's, it's like sodium chloride, hmm. table salt. Right. Um, it dissolves not as quickly as table salt. But for a rock, it <laughs> dissolves really quickly. Huh. Interesting. And it's through dissolving and the interaction with CO2. It's, it's the interaction with CO2 that is the dissolving process. And so, that, so the weathering of this mineral in a beach environment is where the carbon uh, benefit, CO2 extraction benefit occurs. You know, Todd, I'm thinking about who would be absolutely in love with this. Who's that? Two people that have been on the show and talked about this. One is Brad Warren. Of course. Uh, up in Seattle. And Brad is uh, in, in the fisheries business, but is very concerned about climate change and also ocean acidification for uh, shellfish uh, near shore water. The, the intricacies of of shellfish shell formation and 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 ocean acidification is incredibly intricate and and the more carbonic acid there is in the ocean the more detrimental it is to all sorts of uh, of shellfish and especially larvae brad warren talks about this like we've got changing waters podcast changing waters podcast the host of the changing waters podcast on asp and the other guy is Dr. Joseph Kunkel, our expert on lobster shell disease, and who has studied lobster shell, shell formation uh, through the entire life cycle of lobsters and was explaining to us how intricately uh, these uh, organisms are tied to the pH of ocean water, and there's got to be some effort to take this stuff out of the water because we're going to start, we're starting to see diseases in lobsters because of, of ocean acidification. So, it seems like this particular idea, if it can be brought to commercial scale, has tremendous benefits both in terms of restoration of shorelines and environmental benefits to, uh, because of the, the, the treatment of ocean acidification. Seems pretty, pretty, damn, pretty, pretty damn cool. The chemistry of it is absolutely what we need. I mean, come on. This is the challenge of uh, our lifetimes, I think, is how to lower the CO2 brought in. Now, one thing that, uh, Stephen, we talked about when we were over at your booth when we first had met, which was, oh boy, it can rub you a little wrong if you're a, na a naturalist, let's just say, and you say, God, you're gonna bring in a foreign, a foreign mineral and put it on my natural beach, which albeit we're nourishing, so it's a we're we're already conducting some engineering here. Would you talk a little bit about you? You mentioned that when you're talking to your students, first first day of class. You talk about the Anthropocene and what's engineered and what's not. Could you give us that little lecture uh, about how how to think about um, uh, the environment and, and more broadly the planet from a kind of an, an engineering perspective like this, where we're going to be putting our, our fingers on the on the dials a little bit and changing the chemistry very deliberately? 
Sure. I mean, this is part of the journey I've gone through my whole life. I started out my life as a forest activist. I've always been outside in nature. I grew up hunting and fishing. Um, and for me, the transformation occurred as, as I approached got into my adult life and started to teach about this and think deeply about these issues. We are moving to a world that is going to have 11 million people. Uh, and those billion, 11 billion, yeah. billion, those 11 billion people, um, they're going to want to have access to health care. They're going to want to have access to energy. And they deserve a standard of living that they've grown to expect. The way forward, I think, is not to retreat from our impact. I think that's just a, it's a wonderful idea, but it is not practically where we're headed as a society. And what that means is that we need to manage our impact. We're, humans are really good at managing our impact at the scale of cities, at the scale of states, even at the scale of countries. The hard thing, the thing we're struggling about climate is we have one atmosphere and we need to manage that atmosphere at the scale of the whole world, right? And that's what's new here. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, I think that's the challenge. Uh, this is an institutional uh, challenge that we've never faced. And I mean, the closest thing might be uh, the ozone hole and chlorofluorocarbons, addressing that on a worldwide scale, which was done successfully in the 80s, reasonably successfully mm -hmm. as an international uh, effort. Uh, climate change is so much more intricate and so much uh, more tied to our economic activity that we're facing a big challenge here. Yeah, and one of the things that we talk about with people all the time, you know, I'm super excited to see changes in uh, the kind of energy that we get, the kinds of cars that we drive. I think there's a tremendous amount of progress being made in renewable technologies. Um, and, you know, the technology we're developing, it doesn't replace any of those things. Right. It's a yes and. So we need to reduce emissions. We need to develop more climate friendly, more sustainable solutions. That actually increases national security. Um, it limits impacts. Um, but at the same time, what has become increasingly clear, and the IPCC has said this, is that at the rate that we're doing things and the rate that we're likely to do things in the future, we're going to overshoot our climate targets. Yeah. We're going to overshoot our climate targets by about 25 years, and humans emit 40 billion tons of CO2 a year. Right. So we're going to have a trillion ton carbon problem to deal with, and that's Project Vesta's mission, is to make a dent in that pile and help bring the world back down off of a precipice to a, a climate that's more equitable and sustainable. Well, I'm down. So tell us about how much uh, of this mineral would we, how much of this mineral does it take to remove, let's say a ton of CO2? Sure, so a ton of uh, olivine removes about a ton of CO2, 1.25 tons if you want that's to be incredible. very particular. So there's a lot of potential here to move this material. Um, and we work, you know, beach nourishment projects routinely involve millions of tons of material. And so it's a chance to have a really big climate impact at the scale of millions of tons. So that's our, our medium term goal. Our five year plan is to do our first million ton project once we prove that it is safe and effective. And in the long term, we talk about scales that Today sound crazy, but things like a, a billion ton scale would not be out of the realm of possibility. In fact, that's probably the minimum scale that we can take climate action and have a globally significant impact. Interesting. A long way to go. Uh, in the presentation you gave today, it was clear that the focus of your presentation was very much on the science, the safety, and, and the testing that you guys are currently doing. Uh, bringing this material to the American shoreline to put it on a beach is going to be a process of regulatory review that I would expect to be somewhat intensive. Uh, it is what I liked about the presentation was the the dedication. I think the scientific panel that you guys have assembled it looks world class. It the investments right now are in straightforward toxicological analysis, life cycle carbon CO two sequestration analysis. That's the kind of groundwork you have to lay. Um, are you convinced as a, as a geochemist 
that the process that this is something that can be done safely? Do you feel like that, given what you understand, are you feeling pretty comfortable these tests will bear out uh, a, a, a positive result? Yeah, and you know, our, the, as the preliminary data comes back from the, the we have currently have a dozen ecotoxicology experiments going on. Um, we have seen you know, really good initial positive results. Um, the data's not all in yet. Um, we're gonna be publishing that. It'll be peer-reviewed science. Um, and available, um, you know, open access, free of right. charge. To can can we nerd out on that a little bit? I would like to know, can you just like walk us through a toxicology uh, experiment? Like, you know, what does the laboratory look like? What, what, how's the, how does this work? I'm, I'm just very curious. I Sure, so um, the EPA has standardized ecotoxicological assessments that you, if you're doing a dredging project, if you're using a beneficial reuse of sediment, these materials have to be screened to make sure that they are clean. Yeah. And in the U.S., we do this through in vitro testing in living organisms. And so what we do it basically is, um, if you can imagine a whole row of uh, you know, like red solo cups, the kinds you get like have a beer out of a keg. Right. Um, a whole row of those, and you've got um, some sediment, some sand in the bottom of each of those, and maybe you have, let's say, we're doing polychaetes, marine worms. People right. use these for fishing bait. Yeah, Peter um, loves polychaetes. Yeah, yeah. Spent a lot of time in my marine biology days picking polychaetes out of sediment yeah. samples. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. They bite. Yeah, they're, they're feisty little guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, so you'll grow them in olivine sediment, and um, we'll track survival. We'll track growth. We'll track reproduction success. Um, and so we're looking really carefully. We're looking to see if these organisms are ingesting olivine. If so, is that changing their chemical composition? Is there any harmful effects? In some experiments, we're looking at bioaccumulation. You know, is there a chance that um, olivine contains a little bit of chrome and a little bit of nickel? Mm -hmm. um, it's not, it's about 0.4%. That's a lot less chrome and nickel that's in the stainless steel spoon you ate your breakfast off of this morning. Um, but it's enough to keep, to monitor and to take seriously. And so we're looking to see what's the fate of that chrome and nickel. Um, is it being sequestered in sediment safely? Could it be bioaccumulated into ecosystems? And we take these things very, very, very seriously because I don't want to be the guy who puts 100,000 tons of olivine on a beach and have it turn out not to be safe. Right, right. The interesting thing also in the presentation was you mentioned that there are actually olivine beaches in the world. This is, as you said, the most prevalent mineral in the Earth's crust. Uh, it is not uh, unique. Uh, it is something that we are exposed to regularly, but there are olivine beaches. Tell us about that. Sure, yeah. So, you know, olivine is a very, as I said, it's a very common mineral. 30% of the basalt in Hawaii is made up of the mineral olivine. And Hawaii is not a place that we think of as being ecologically degraded or, uh, you know, in anything like that, right? It's a thriving right. ecosystem. Yeah. Um, and there are a number of actually pu nearly pure olivine beaches in the world. They're pretty rare. There's about four of them. And one of the largest and best known is a place called Papakalea Beach on the south point of the big island of Hawaii. And that beach um, sits at the, the edge seashore and you have a cinder cone that is weathering and olivine is literally falling out of the cliff and accumulating in, a, in an olivine rich beach that sits there and tumbles back and forth in the shore. And that's been there for thousands of years, naturally going back and forth. Right. So we use that as a natural laboratory where we can study how olivine behaves in a real world natural example. I like to focus on the science. You're going to have to go through the regulatory process, so you've got to have this data, peer-reviewed, published studies. This is, a, this is the way to bring forward an innovative idea into the system. Let's talk about how this could actually work. Uh, in the presentation, the notion is there, this material is mined in uh, many places around the world. It could be put onto a bulk carrier ship. You could get a shipload of olivine sail it to a, an area where there's a beach nourishment project and offload it and integrate the material directly into the beach nourishment project. Am I following the idea? Is you, that the you, basic idea? Yeah, you are following the idea. And so our target is to use not pure olivine, but usually a 10% mix with natural sand and sediment. Okay. Um, that's valuable for a couple of different reasons, the most important of which is that a 10% blend of olivine with your natural sand, whether it's a silicate sand, quartz, or carbonate sand, it's visually indistinguishable. It will look and feel exactly like the beach you had before. Because it's a mined material and it's crushed and sieved, 
We can control the grain size so it'll perfectly match the beach you already have. And anybody who didn't didn't know better, um, they'd just be walking down a beach right. like it was there yesterday. Wow. But I think they should know better. I was telling Peter last night, there should be a certification. So if you're on a beach that's capturing carbon, that you should know about. I mean, it's a really, I think there's a ton of potential here for uh, like a, a energy star type of certification uh, right. with this technology. Blue flag beaches is a big deal. ASBPA is a proponent of the blue flag beaches program, which is a certification of beach health. If, if the idea is that when I go to the beach, I'm on a carbon capture beach, mm -hmm. I'm on a CO2 reduction beach, I think that's something people are going to care about. I would think that companies that are involved in dredging, that, for example, Great Lakes Dredging Dock, one of your partners, we want to talk about this. Uh, the notion that you could use beach nourishment to offset CO2 emissions is something that the public is looking for. Uh, we need to address this problem. Uh, Tell us about, so if, I'm, if I have a million cubic yard beach project, you're talking about integrating 100,000 cubic yards of material olivine into that beach. Um, what kind of, how does the carbon uh, process work here? O over what period of time would this beach perform to remove CO2 of, from the air? Talk to us about the timing of the process here. We're talking about a chemical transformation process, how that works. Yeah, so... Um, so we've looked pretty carefully at our end-to-end -end carbon footprint. We call this our life cycle analysis. Yep. Um, and this whole process end-to-end, -end, the mining, the crushing, the transportation, spreading this material on a beach is very efficient. It's over 90% efficient. And so we have a 10 to 1 ratio, the amount of CO2 that we're capturing, to the amount of CO2 that we take up. And so what happens is as that olivine, we place it on a beach and it begins to dissolve and take up CO2, over a course of a few decades, that material will continue to dissolve, continue to dissolve, and you're taking up CO2 all the time. So what we've done, one of the things that we're really excited about is doing the world's first carbon neutral dredging project. Dredging projects are notoriously diesel hungry. Yes, they are. These big ships. Um, and we have an opportunity, um, the payback time on a dredging project that uses 10% olivine is on the order of 15, maybe 25 years as this material dissolves. So, you know, and we're working with companies like Great Lakes Dredge and Dock to explore this, you know, we wanna be the, the first carbon negative uh, dredging project in the world. And uh, if you're thinking, wow, that's a long time, uh, know that these beach renourishment projects are, you know, when you're thinking about engineering and stabilizing a shoreline, these are projects that have a lifespan of oftentimes five, 10 years. Yes, maybe 15 maybe, as well. Maybe 15. Yep, depending on the erosion rate and the shoreline transportation rate. The, yeah, the physical characteristics mm -hmm. of the shore. What do you have here, Stephen? And, you know, so it, the nice thing about working with olivine, too, is that it's sort of a, a set it and forget it solution. Once the olivine sand is in contact with seawater in the environment, that even if that beach erodes, that sand is still going somewhere. It's still yeah. in seawater. It's still delivering benefits. And so, you know, sometimes people ask us, you know, won't the olivine sand dissolve when I lose my beach? And the answer is, um, yes, it will dissolve, but it's going to dissolve over, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. And so, you know, on the timescale of a beach nourishment project, you're not really going to lose, you're not going to notice that the material is going away. You're not going to notice a change, but you're having a positive climate impact that um, is going to, frankly, um, the magnitude of the climate problem is so large that we're looking at yeah. uh, a problem that we're going to be dealing with for the next decades into forever. the future, right? Yeah, I, think so it's, I think it's a forever. I think yeah. we need to figure out how to handle the fact that we've, we pump 40, is it, gigatons of, of CO2 into the atmosphere every year. Uh, some of the guests that we've had on ASPN have said, look, it's not enough to, to reduce uh, carbon emissions, CO2 emissions by 50%. We actually have to, it's not enough to go to zero. Actually, to, to rebalance the, the, and respond to climate change, it's got to be net, it's got to be net negative, which means we've got to extract. We have put so much into the atmosphere, we're starting to see the effects, and it's going to take, it's going to take the, the, forever for us to, to, to figure out how to live differently and to undo the damage that has been done. And so the, the time scale problem to me is not, not an issue. You've it's hard to, it, you know, it's hard to say, because uh, if you were to go back and if we were having this conversation, it would look very different uh, 200 years ago or 100 years ago. It's just hard to say what the world's gonna look like in 100 years, but sure. one thing's for certain, uh, the 
the issue with carbon in the atmosphere and the oceans is just a constant. We hear about it on virtually all of our shows all the time. It is the problem of our time. Yeah. And what I find so fascinating about this, I said at the beginning of the show, but for the first time in in my exposure to beach management and coastal management and coming to ASBPA and hearing talks with geologists and engineers, this is the first time that we're getting at the carbon problem yeah, first in time. this space. And yeah. I just, I find that to be uh, r- truly revolutionary. This is a, a line in the sand kind of uh, moment here. And I, I uh, Stephen, you were saying in your presentation that, you know, five years ago, if you were to have, be presenting this, that you'd be pilloried because it would just be kind of crazy. Well, we don't, why would we do that? But the world has really changed during that period of time. And uh, Project Vesta now exists and has funding and we are moving forward. And um, I don't want to move us along if, if we still want to talk about the delivery, but I do want to talk about like how Project Vesta intends to make money doing this because it's an interesting business model that I think a lot of people might not be familiar with. Sure. Um, you were talking about, you know, where is the world going to be in 100 years? Where is the world going to be in 200 years? The thing that I tell when I talk to students about this, the one thing we know for sure, if you imagine that 200 years from now, think how advanced humanity will be, right? The one thing they would do is they would, they would fix the problem, right? They would just go, hey, we got too much CO2 in the atmosphere. Let's take some CO2 back out of the atmosphere, right? That's where we're headed with this. We're taking the first steps in that direction. And... In order to do that, um, we're partnering with companies uh, like uh, Stripe is one of our big partners. We've uh, sold over 300,000 uh, 300, uh, 3, tons of CO2 credits to Stripe at $75 a ton. So that was a quarter of a million dollar deal. Um, and we're really appreciative of their support and um, you know, contributions like that. Um, investors from other parts of uh, the West Coast, sort of tech space and things like that, have really helped us to get this technology off the ground. Um, and our long-term business model um, relies on leveraging first the voluntary carbon market, and then as one develops a national carbon markets. And so we can bring this olivine in from uh, wherever you're mining it, and crush it and sieve it and spread it on a beach for, we think, around $60, $65 a ton. Um, the current carbon market will value, the voluntary carbon market will value those carbon credits at um, potentially between $75 and $100 a ton. And so um, if you'll excuse a real bad pun here, <laughs> that delta, that's yeah. the delta that Project Vesta maintains. It's the difference between that price. Right. Um, and. Uh, that's how we. That's how we will function as a company, and it's really important because, um, you know, as a, as a federally funded or a nonprofit organization, um, it's you're not going to be able to operate at the the millions and billions of tons a year scale that are needed to address these issues. You need to address it with the power of the market, and you need to actually be moving the needle in a way that matters. Couple of key things in that in that summary one the voluntary carbon carbon market uh explain to us what that is that th- this does exist now around the world explain that to our listeners yeah so the there are a couple of different kinds of carbon markets around the world there are uh, government-run markets like the market in california um and then there are voluntary carbon markets which are they're literally that they're just a private transaction between organizations or individuals um and a lot of the companies that are most concerned about this are companies that you've heard of, like Google, Microsoft, uh, credit card processing companies like Stripe. Mm-hmm. Um, these companies have big CO2 imprints through their data centers, right? and they're eager to offset those emissions. You have companies like Shell, um, who was just told in Dutch court that they need to go carbon neutral. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of interest in offsetting CO2 emissions. Um, and uh, these voluntary markets are making it now possible to explore these climate technologies by offering a price that makes it possible to do the science we need to do and explore these ideas. Got it. So if I'm a major, let's, I'm just going to say Google as an example, and we know that our energy-intensive systems of operating Google and all the server farms and all of that stuff produces a, requires a ton of energy, uh, lots and lots of power, and has a carbon uh, uh, impact. 
and we would like to offset that. So I come to you and I say, tell you what, I'll give you $75 for every ton of CO2 you can take out of the atmosphere and out of the ocean uh, with olivine placement. So we will pay you, Project Vesta, to get that olivine onto a beach. So if I'm a beach town, mm-hmm. Uh, this transaction could potentially result in a in a contribution of sand to my beach nourishment project that is paid for essentially by Google, and Project Vesta is making money as off the delta, and the local community is getting sediment that is indistinguishable essentially given the proportion and the ratio and the grain size and all the stuff you've got to account for. Um, that is an amazing little uh, a transaction to develop. So my question is, is the carbon market, uh, obviously uh, you guys believe it's sufficiently developed that this uh, transaction can be done, number one, and that there is sufficient olivine available that can be moved at a, in a carbon neutral way wherever it needs to be on beaches around the United States. Is that fair? That's fair. And we see ourselves as, a, you know, we're a technological partner. We're developing the means to deploy this stuff safely and effectively. We're a broker. We're, you know, playing matchmaker between communities that desperately need sand. Maybe they can't afford a nourishment project. Maybe they have erosion issues and companies that want to offset their carbon emissions. And so wow. we see this as a rising tides lifts all ships sort of situation hmm. um, where we can do, we're really, our customers at the end of the day, are the coastal communities. So the people that walk on those beaches, the people that throw a ball on those beaches, the people that fish on those beaches. And we want to make sure that we're working with communities to create and sustain the future they want. Hmm. Wow. So I love the Great Lakes Dredge and Dock partnership. Great Lakes Dredge and Dock, one of the fine sponsors on the coast on Coastal News Today and ASPN. Yes, indeed. Big shout out to one of our sponsors. But Great Lakes, I can see the interest here. Um, You're right. Dredging is an an energy intensive operation. Big ships, big engines, lots of diesel. Uh, There is a move internationally uh, to address ship emissions, uh, CO2 emissions around the world. The International Maritime Organization is actively pursuing that. Uh, major shipping lines are moving into this territory. They know they have to offset. So for Great Lakes, here's the two-for-one with those guys. Not only do they operate big ships and produce a lot of emissions, they also are the people who can move this material onto the beach and integrate it into the project design. That's what I found fascinating. I want to know about the conversations. How did it happen? Did they contact you? Did you contact them? And what's the nature of the partnership, which was just announced this week uh, between Project At Vesta. ASP, well, At, not, not here, but it, we were here when it was announced. Contemporaneous with the conference. So tell us about the partnership with the Great Lakes. Yeah, so this is a partnership that has been built up over time. So okay. one of the cool things about Project Vesta is that we are a, a group where we're about half scientists and we're about half business people. And so our director of strategic partnerships, Brian Lay, reached out to Great Lakes Dredge and Dock. And the way these conversations always start with our partners, it's a, a phone call, it's an email, and then you meet, you know, once a month. And then one meeting turns into two meetings, and all of a sudden you're meeting once a week, and then you're on the phone every day, right, with our partners. Um, and, you know, we're just looking at, you know, every conversation starts out with, you know, are these guys for real? Is this something that we can really do? And the only way to, you know, satisfy people is to, you know, have those conversations, convince them this is real. They run the numbers internally. They look at the opportunity. And, you know, in the end, we, you know, they agree. Well, wow, there's a there there. And, um, you know, and we're interested in talking with other people around the U.S. to explore similar opportunities um, we're partnered with major olivine suppliers. Um, we're working with lots of towns and cities to explore opportunities there. And so we're really excited about this. If people want to learn more about Project Vesta, where can they go to learn more? Um, you can visit our website at projectvesta.org. Um, you can uh, reach out to me at steve at projectvesta.org. Um, and we'd be happy to hear from you. I want to ask another question. I want, to, I want to talk about Great Lakes a little bit more. So the, the, the way I understand it, uh, a bulk carrier ship mm-hmm. sets sail from a mine with a boatload of, of olivine sand that has been crushed to the uh, grain size that the project needs. Uh, 
to get it off the ship and onto the beach. This is why the Great Lakes connection is so important. I mean, if it is an offshore uh, pipeline dredging project, for example, where they're using an offshore sand source and they're three or four or five miles off, then these mean pipeline projects now can go 10, 20 miles, actually. How would the how would the material get off of the ship and onto the beach? Have you guys worked this out with Great Lakes? Do they... Because it seems like you could slurry it right out of a bulk ship and just integrate it in, into the sand supply and put it on the beach, and it would be it would just be mixed together. Is is, what, is what's the technique? That's the concept, um, and we're still working out the precise details of how this will work in every project. Yeah. Um, for smaller scale projects, we can you know if you're it's a thousand yard or a ten thousand yard project, we can bring it in on trucks. Um, we've talked about using split-hull barges to do nearshore placement projects. Right. We've talked about doing pump-out hopper dredges to supply offshore uh, pipeline projects. And then, you know, potentially even at the largest scales, um, you know, actually offloading those, you know, using self-unloading bulk carriers and offloading that material right. directly into, yeah. like, a depleted borrow pit, right? Yeah. Can, we, can we just have a steady stream of... Panamax-sized vessels that refill those boro pits every week. Another ship shows up from the mine until we wow. have placed the sand back that we need. You know who would dig this is Chris Gibson at TI Coastal Services. Um, Chris is an engineer over in Topsail Beach, North Carolina, and has in, in working on projects with Chris over the years. They've been extracting sand out of uh, uh, Corps of Engineers dredge material disposal sites. Mm-hmm. Pretty good sand. They dredge their way into those things. They're extracting the material and then using it on the beach. So there are these cells of, of containers, essentially, of material containers that where you can stockpile it. If you could bring the olivine in, put it in that, in that cell, in that disposal pit, when Chris needs sand for the beach, he designs that into his project, and that's the source, and it's just set. And you can refill that. That's kind of the notion. Mm-hmm. You guys are on to something. I think this is a thing. Uh, we, I, this you know, is this is good. Every every talk I go here, it's it's always you know where are we going to get the sand from? We don't have enough sand to meet our fifty year need. Like right. we're we're struggling to meet that need and demand. We've got a climate problem. We've got rising sea levels. We've got all of these things, and we've got one solution that sort of hits ticks many yeah. of these buckets. And we're, yeah. we think that's uh, going to be kind of a big thing. I mean, it's fascinating because uh, pre our concern with carbon. Uh, I don't believe we were ever like mining and grinding rock to make just beach sand. I don't think that was ever a thing. Not, not that I know. I mean, of. like for a 100% beach. I mean, I, I w- I'm sure that for industrial purposes, you would know, Stephen, but mm-hmm. that that occurs sure, for very does. like specific mineral sand, like olivine. But uh, in the beach conversation, that was never a thing because the quantities that we're dealing with, Peter, this Galveston project that our good friend Ruben Trevino. Uh, helped oversee and work on. Yeah, uh, transformed the Galveston coast from basically being a seawalled coast to now there is a beautiful wide beach uh, that is actively maintained. I think yeah. there's another cycle coming up. Yeah, uh, it would be impossible to artificially create this a hundred percent. But what you're saying is that you could bring in ten percent of that total material. I believe they're over a million cubic yards. Yeah, for sure they are. So we'd be talking in this particular example, it'd be like 100,000 cubic yards of material, mix it in with the beach sand, and bada bing, bada boom. You had a carbon neutral beach project. And 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 more sand. A carbon negative, I believe, because this bad boy is going to be digesting CO2 through the water for... A hundred years or more, yeah. and and you, uh, in your presentation you talked about this break-even point. Can you elaborate on that? I, you, I think it was twenty-five, 25 years. years. What yeah. happens in twenty-five years that's important? So the first twenty-five years. Yeah. So so what we've done is we've calculated how much CO two does it take to to mine the olivine to crush it, sieve it, ship it, and we've also calculated for uh, different kinds of dredging projects. Let's say we're doing a you know a, a big hopper dredge project, or we're doing uh, you know other kind of dredging projects. You can calculate the CO2 that that whole project emits. Um, and so what we've done is we've calculated, okay, we've got, let's say we've got uh, 1,000 or 1,700 tons of CO2 that have been emitted over the course of this project. How long does the olivine TIF to take to dissolve, to take up an equivalent amount of CO2? So your overall net impact of the project is break even. Right. It's just like financing, right? If you take out a loan, 
and you have to pay back the loan. Well, this is our break-even point. We're taking out a loan of CO2, right. and we're paying the environment back that CO2. Um, and so, you know, for a typical dredging project um, where we're bringing in, uh, you know, olivine sand, we're talking a payback time of 25 years, something like that. Um, and so we were saying before, you know, that sounds like a long time, but on the scale of, you know, civil engineering projects, bridges that are supposed to last, you know, decades yeah. or centuries, I mean, yeah. this is a very reasonable solution. That's a, that's a time scale that is in the business that mm. is, you know, did. The Minnesota Key Project that we financed over there in uh, uh, Charlotte County. Charlotte County, yeah. Uh, Florida. Uh, the beach life uh, was eight years per cycle. The funding strategy and the uh, nourishment cycle was over. It was a 50-year project redone every eight years. And so the engineers are already working on the financing is set up over a 50-year life cycle period this is all part this would fit just fine mm -hmm. in the way engineers develop beach restoration projects and the way the economics of beach restoration financing operate mm -hmm. i just think if we were in charlotte county and everybody said you know this is one of the things you face when you stand in front of the public to raise taxes for shoreline management is everyone's like there's got to be some free stuff out there isn't somebody just going to come in and give us money and i said there are no pennies from heaven we are we're here to talk about the taxes you have to pay because money is not going to rain down upon you uh the state is going to help in this case there was no federal money but this is really up to the local government and the taxpayers there is no angel this is kind of the angel this is the 10 percent angel this is like no there's a guy that will bring the sand to you at no cost it's going to make your beach it, it, it'll make your beach a a, a carbon uh, response, a climate change response beach, and this material operates in the Swashone. It's it would be. I'll tell you, people would have. How do we do it? Would have been the question. How do we how do we get this material integrated into our project? Reduce our our project cost by ten or maybe twenty percent. Drop our tax rate. This is going to be. I think it would be a hit. There's no question. I mean, I, 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 we should be doing. We should have been doing this yesterday. I mean, this is a great <laughs> idea. But, but um, okay, a couple of thoughts. One is, we, Peter, we should invest in an olivine mine. <laughs> I do have a little vial I got from these guys. I mean, I was, He's already got his collection. I was going to take it home and like put it in a jar and see what happens. I don't know. I was going to. It'd be a fun little. I, I got Steve. You got to grow some doom plants in this stuff. Yes. If, if, is that yeah. in your deal? Because yeah, that's going to be a big question. That's one of the questions that came up this week and i actually have a, a master student who's interested in growing some dune plants in olivine great it's on our ecotoxicology list great you got to um, do that yeah steve mercer with coastal transplants of course has eight greenhouses grows a lot of plants but th this would be i'll tell you it's gonna come up when i was at the general land office as a coastal program director and did the regulatory stuff on a lot of projects uh, they're going to want to know how does it move on the beach does it blow up into the dunes how does it affect the the dune plant ecology and i i gotta think it's 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 going to be benign but i don't know but you're gonna have to prove it you yep. have to prove now and we're you know one of the things i always emphasize is that we are a science-based organization um half of our staff are scientists we have 10 science full-time scientists on staff seven phds and you know we are nothing if not careful and cautious yeah and we're really committed to doing this ethically and responsibly and you know bringing this to market bringing it to regulators with the data to prove that this is that it's safe that this is a green technology that is environmentally friendly um, and that there won't be hidden impacts yeah okay good stuff I mean that's what we got to know and that and that's what's going to be demanded well, it's, it's uh, you know, Tyler, I think you're right. And in, in all of the ASBPA conferences we have covered and, and the other coastal conferences we have been to, uh, I've never seen this connection done. It's the first time I've seen a, a carbon removal uh, coastal project strategy, strategy method yeah. business. Yeah. This is a business like these yeah. other engineering firms that are here. Uh, this is a, a moment that I think I'm going to make a mental note of because yeah. we are clearly turning the corner as a society. Uh, we, I think we want to do this. Uh, the fact that you are working, Stephen, you're obviously a, a very talented uh, geologist and uh, you had your academic career ahead of you. The fact that you got into this and 
dove in along with the other 10 scientists you've got on on board um, and the fact that there's funding coming from the business side I think is is also striking yeah market. Um, and of course and then you add on top of that the Great Lakes Dredge and Dock uh, connection I mean I, all I can say is congratulations to uh, this company Project Vesta uh, it's it's great to have you in this community um, it's it I, I'm excited for this this is yeah. a sign of hope for me uh, final words, uh, Steve. I just wanted to thank you guys. It's been delightful to be on the show. Um, this is our first time at ASBPA, and the entire community has been warm, welcome, inquisitive. They've asked good questions. We've learned from you all, and I hope that you've learned something from us. And I look forward to being here next year, and I look forward to being on the show in the future. We'd love to have you back. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Stephen Romanello, the Director of Research for Project Vesta, one of the most innovative companies I, we have ever encountered at ASBP, and a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for sharing your story with our audience. It's great to be here. Thank you very much.